when you get a chance to greet people, hug people, acknowledge people there, because the definition of what it means to be church is so contested and so difficult right now. Um, at my home church, the church I attend when I'm not out speaking or traveling, my pastor likes to say, the church is not three things that um, here in New York we so commonly think it is based on our experience, right? Um, a lot of people think of the church as a shopping center where I go and I consume the religious product that I want. If I buy the right thing, if I hear the right sermon, if I get the right junior church experience, I'm going to leave happy. And so we come to church as consumers um, looking for things that we want and that's why we have terms like church shopping, right? Which is telling even in the terminology that ultimately we're just there as consumers trying to pick up the things that we want. He said also some people like to think of the church as a theater where you come into your seats, which are comfortable. People perform in front of you. You may leave inspired. You may leave a little teary. But the goal is the people up front are here um, to give you a life-changing experience. Um, and you hope that happens. But ultimately, the challenge, of course, is that the church is never designed for us to be an audience. That in fact, if the church does its work, it's God who's the audience, right? To whom all of us offer our praise and worship in the hopes that we please him and that we delight him. And so the odd thing, of course, is that while it looks like I'm at the front and you're in the audience, in fact, the audience is there. And our engagement is part of the ways that we please him. And my pastor likes to also say, um, often we think of the church as a subway car where we're all really close together, but if you ride the subway in New York, you try not to interact <laughs> too much. And when interaction happens, it's not usually a good thing, right? So that you sit often very close to people. I'm often, especially in the morning rush, closer to people on the subway than I would be with my own spouse in public. Um, but that that isn't church either, that we're proximate and close to one another without actual interaction in life. Right? And the metaphors for church in the New Testament are actually rich and diverse. And part of what we want to, we're going to look at today is um, one of these examples where Paul attempts to open up the picture of what it looks like to be church together um, and reveal for us a little bit more about the kind of community that God calls us to be. So let me pray for us as we begin. Lord, ultimately, uh, we desire to please you uh, here in this time that we have together. Uh, remind us that you are here, um, that you watch and receive our offering of worship and of prayer, of speaking, of responding with uh, great delight and joy, that it pleases you um, that we've shown up. And so, Lord, um, make us attentive to your spirit. Help us to discern what you desire to say to us in your word today. Help us to respond with worship and prayer um, in sighs and songs in ways which um, give you delight, which glorify Jesus and reflect our posture that we desire the Holy Spirit to be at work in us, transforming us day to day um, more and more into the image of our Savior. Uh, amen. I want to suggest that part of the reason it's so critical for us to think about what it means to be church is, in fact, the church is often now more divided than ever. Um, we're divided often along uh, racial lines um, here in the United States. We're often divided by lines along class. So even if there's ethnic diversity, there often isn't socioeconomic diversity. We're often divided, um, particularly in this era, by politics. And if any of you happen to be on social media, um, you know um, claims about what people on 
who are the church should do or should not do, what they should believe or not believe, what they should be outraged about or not outraged about, abound. And people are quick to say, well, I'm not that any longer. And Paul writes in Colossians to similarly a divided church, a church that's experiencing great tension, some division. And in the earlier parts of the book of Colossians, he's actually emphasizing what does it mean for us to be one in Christ, given that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church. He created all things, and by him all things are created in him, for him, and through him. And similarly, he's the Lord of the new creation and holds everything, both the physical reality and our spiritual reality together. How then shall we live? And you get here toward um, chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, where he begins to pivot from don't live like this, but start to live like this. And in verses 12 through 17, he's particularly compelled and interested in what is the nature of the church going to be like? And not in an abstract way, but in a practical way, how are we going to live together? More than just how are we going to live together, how are we going to become the kind of community where if people were to look at us, it would be clear Jesus Christ is the one who brings us together, who continues to sustain us and has a purpose for us, right? Because ultimately, while we're delighted when people say, what a kind, nice, loving group of people, that's an insufficient expression of what it means to be church. Because there are a lot of gatherings of nice, kind people in the world. The distinct thing that will make a church a church is that they're nice, kind, loving people because Christ has saved them and transformed them, right? That he's at work and moving among them and that he's with them as they begin engage in mission together. And so let's look again at verses 12 through 17 of Colossians chapter 3 of how Paul challenges us. Um, to become a church or to be a church together. And part of what he says, I think, in um, verses, the first part of verse 12, is that unity in the church, right? Health in the church begins when we know who we are in, who we are in Christ. Notice how he begins the section. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, then he begins to talk about what we should do. But it's all presaged on this fact. You are God's chosen people. You are God's holy people. You are dearly beloved. Before any action that we take, as our prayer reminded us today, it has to begin with who we are. And Paul's intentional at these three categories, I think, because he suggests if you know who you are and you know who each other is, all of the behaviors that we long to see will actually flow naturally from that. Paul identifies the Colossians as chosen people, holy and deeply loved. Because I want to suggest knowing that God loves us, has chosen us, and is changing us, frees us to love other people well. Right? If you don't know that you are loved, it is very difficult to love. If you are unsure about your security in your relationship, it's very difficult to do anything but be defensive. But if you know that you're chosen, right, if you know that the sovereign Lord of the universe looks at you and says, before time itself began, I chose you and named you, I want you to belong to me. There is nothing, right, on heaven or on earth, below the earth, that can ever separate you from my love. You are my dearly beloved one. I will love you no matter what. And I am changing you. You are becoming more like Jesus every day. Do not despair. If you have that kind of security that God is doing that kind of work in us, it frees us from the insecurities that make us jealous. 
right? It heals us from the woundedness that makes us kind of defensive when we're in conversation, and it frees us from the self-righteousness that makes us arrogant because in the end, my holiness is not dependent on my own action. It's dependent on the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit transforming me from moment to moment. When we're deeply loved, we are more able to love. Right? That's actually why I think um, children who are raised, um, why God gives us children in the context of marriage, because when a man and a woman looks at each other and says, I'm choosing you above every other person in the world, I will never forsake you for better or for worse in sickness and health till death do us part. I'm committed with you to how, whoever you become and however we grow, we are going to do this together. When you have that kind of security from your spouse in that context, it enables you then with greater generosity, with greater hope, and greater resilience to then love these children who are an incredibly exhausting, <laughs> challenging being to welcome into your life. We love our children, and we're going to love our children far more confidently when we know the foundational relationship that we're embedded in is also one of love, forgiveness, and hope, right? Because then you know no matter how hard this gets, no matter how physically exhausted I am, no matter how emotionally challenging, we're in this together, right? And that's part of the context. And I think when we know we're deeply loved, it actually allows us to extend grace to other people. In her book, um, Out of the Salt Shaker, uh, Becky Pippert talks about it experience that she heard about when she was a campus minister with InterVarsity in Portland. She said at that point, there was a student that we knew. His name was Bill. And Bill was the classic granola, crunchy Portlander um, a decade or two back. She said his hair always looked a little wild and unkempt because he was clearly thinking deep, profound, philosophical thoughts. Right? He mostly managed to get on a t-shirt and jeans um, on a day. And he just was barefoot. Right, January 1 to December 31st, because in Portland you can get away with that. He'd wander around barefoot the streets of Portland, attending classes, thinking deep, profound thoughts, and he began to encounter Jesus. One Sunday, in his process of coming to Jesus, um, he decided to attend a church that was doing its best to reach out to the college students across the street. But this was one of those churches where everybody comes in a suit on a Sunday, right? Where the way you show your love for God is to prepare um, the clothing that you wear for God, um, some of us come from church traditions like that. Others of us do not. But um, this was one of those churches, right, where your Sunday best really was your Sunday best. And so um, the Sunday service had started, and Bill, being Bill, had come a little late. And as he walked in the back door, he realizes, realized the church was pretty full. The church was doing a good job with outreach. So he began to shuffle his way forward. And as he began to move through the, you know, kind of coming up closer and closer to the front of the church, everybody began to watch him singing their hymn. And Bill got all the way up to the front, realized there were no seats at the church, so he just sat down right at the front of the pulpit on the floor, as you might do if you were a college student who wanders barefoot through the streets of Portland, January through December. The church kind of took a breath, and then all of a sudden, um, this older man stood up um, from the back of the church. This was one of the kind of key pillars of the church, right? The paragon of order and of virtue, Right, the one who knows where the chairs go and which cabinet the particular saucer goes into, the one who made sure the programs are folded properly every Sunday. And he began to walk up toward the front of the church, and everybody at the church began to think, you know, you really can't blame him, but this is going to be frustrating, right? This kid who barely looks like he's bathed, maybe, um, is now squatting here at the front of the church um, on the carpet. And they all kind of watch Bill 
as this older man walked forward, you could just feel the tension grow at the church as everybody thinks this is just not going to go well. And then the, that older man chose to sit down next to Bill on the carpet. And according to the people who were there at the church, people at the church just started tearing up. Because what they saw was somebody who knew they were so deeply beloved by God, right? Who knew that they were growing in their own process of holiness, who, know, who knew that they had been chosen by God, who, in order to demonstrate welcome, in order to um, show Bill that he was loved, right, chose to abandon everything that would make him comfortable in order to communicate it clearly. And I think he could do it because he knew who God was and he knew who he was in God. And the weird thing, of course, is Bill is probably the only person in that entire church who had no idea of what just happened. He thought it was normal that the senior citizen would sit on the floor on the carpet in front of the pulpit because that's often how love works. The recipient of love is often quite unaware of the cost that's being paid by the people around them. But there's something about knowing that you're loved, knowing that you're chosen, knowing that God is at work in you that I think frees you to love generously and abundantly because we're secure in who we are. I think that's one of the reasons Paul goes, look, before we talk about how to live together, know this, you were chosen. God has chosen you. Know this, you are deeply loved. Know that Christ has accomplished everything that has to happen. You are, in fact, holy. Therefore, love in this way. I think it's also telling that Paul says this because he says that not just about us, so therefore love in this way, but Paul identifies the Colossians as a chosen people, holy and deeply loved, because knowing the other person is also chosen by God, also that other person is also loved by God, that other person is also on a pathway toward reflecting the character of Jesus, that person that we may be struggling with, if you know that's true about them, it actually changes your perception of who they are and how you should engage with them, right? Because to break fellowship with somebody who Christ has chosen, who Christ deeply loves, and who Christ is making holy, is actually rejecting Christ's choice, right? When you choose to say, I will not be in relationship with you, even though Christ has chosen you to be part of my family, because we're chosen to belong to a family together, that I am actually denying what Christ says is true about you, that you're growing in holiness, right? That I'm, you, I cannot care about you even though Christ loves you, suggests not just a break in relationship with that person that you're breaking relationship with, it actually begins to sunder you from the relationship that you have with Jesus himself, who's already made that choice. It's like when we get a new in-law, isn't it? We may not have chosen them, in fact, we didn't choose them. But they were chosen by someone that we love. And so that you know, right, as hard as it is sometimes to love an in-law, and you'll say I'm being very vague as to whether it's mother-in-law, father-in-law, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, because I'll let you all apply. But um, we choose to try to love them. Even if we do not find them lovable for the sake of the one who loves them, to honor the one who loves them and has chosen them. We do our best. We don't always succeed. Let's be, let's be honest and clear. But because they've been chosen by someone that we love, who has also chosen us, 
at our best, we try to love them. We try to welcome them. We try to embrace them with all of their idiosyncrasies um, and difficulties because we love the one they love. And we love the one who loves them. And Paul says, look, you have been chosen by God. You are deeply loved by him. You are growing in holiness. And so is that person you are struggling with right now. Out of your love for Jesus, will you welcome them as well? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said um, in his book, Life Together, the fact that we are brethren, right, that we are a family only through Jesus Christ is of immeasurable significance to us. Not only the other one, person who is earnest or devout, who comes to me seeking fellowship, must I deal with in fellowship. My brother or sister is rather the other person who has been redeemed by Christ and, de and delivered from his sin. Right? Ultimately, that's what we're about. And Paul says, look, understand who you are and understand the person that you're struggling with, who they are both of you being in Christ. And so we're, he's talking specifically about the fellowship of faith in the church. Know who you are. God loves you and them. God has chosen you and them. God is bringing both of you increasingly into Christ-likeness. Out of love for the one who has chosen you, both. Who loves you, both. And is making you both holy. Do these things that will help bind you together. Part of what I want to note for just a second before we move on is those terms, chosen, beloved, holy, right? Fascinatingly enough, those are terms that God uses for Jesus as well, that the Gospels and the Epistles talk about. This is the character of Jesus. The deeper we grow into Christ-likeness, the more we begin to look like Jesus, Paul seems to say. These things will be true. So what should you do then? If you know this to be true about this person that you're struggling with or may disagree with, Paul has some very clear suggestions. Unity in Christ grows when we love each other like Christ loves us. Look at verses 12, the second half through 14. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So Paul uses this imagery right, of putting on clothing because he's just talked about in the prior verses, take off those things that actually are, um, are incompatible with your new status in Christ. Put off, you know, these various sins and other things. So now that you're naked standing before God, what you do, put on these virtues. Put on these commitments, right, of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And I want to suggest, though, I suspect they're somewhat in a random order for Paul. I'm not sure that they're, you know, he doesn't usually have lists where he's like, I'm going to use these same things in the same order every time. Um, I think he's looking at what are the virtues that bind people together. It strikes me, though, that these describe a posture toward other people, a posture toward ourselves, and then some actions which are consistent with those postures. So the posture towards others, I want to suggest, are the first two, compassion and kindness, right? Um, if I know you to be deeply loved by God, chosen by him and holy, then part of my posture toward you should be compassion and kindness. Compassion means um, when I look at you, I share your feelings, um, your motivations and desires. I have an understanding of what those are, right? I look at you with kindness. 
um, which I want to suggest is kind of a hermeneutic of trust, of an assumption that when you speak, I'm going to believe you and I'm going to believe the best of you as you say it, how you say it, and why you say it. Imagine if we were to approach other people, not suspiciously or not defensively, but with a deep desire for them to know I understand you and I am predisposed toward kindness, toward trust, toward you, right? That I'm believing the best in you. We all know how that works, right? In our most intimate relationships. I know the huge difference I have in the conversations with my wife when I walk into a conversation assuming that she's not being critical, but instead she's being supportive, right? Assuming that she's not angry, but she's pleased, right? You, we've all walked in those conversations, and you start talking, you think, you seem angry. And they say, but I'm not, right? And then how that conversation almost never goes well. Um, in part, right, because if you come at it from a, a hermeneutic, a lens of suspicion, a lens of disbelief, a lens of distrust. Every word they say, every eyebrow wrinkle, every right little um, move, twitch of their lips communicates to you, you are so in trouble right now. But imagine we walked into a conversation with, let me understand you better. And with kindness, I actually believe the best in you. Think of how the relationships that are filled with struggle might begin to change if we had that kind of posture. Right? Um, I think about um, the racial conversations in our society. What would it take for us to enter in those conversations with a, I want to understand you and understand your experience. And I'm going to enter into them with a posture of kindness, believing the best in you, hoping for the best in you. Help me to better understand you. Think of the ways that that would open up conversations in the racial conversations in the United States, where, in fact, most of the conversations are from every direction. I don't actually believe you. I think we're opposed, and I'm going to assume opposition from you until you prove to me that we're actually on the same side. Right? Conversations die in those kind of moments. Think about the way it would transform conversations with people that you don't know but who you need to better understand whether because they're on a different side politically or theologically or relationally. Help me better understand you so that I have compassion for you and with you. And that with our shared passion then, we, act, we understand how to um, engage kindly toward each other. Do you see how that posture change begins to change conversations from oppositional or defensive to one where we have a shared goal, we want to understand better? And we're going to engage kindly with one another in that process. Paul says, look, put on kindness and compassion. And then he says, put on humility, which I want to suggest is a posture toward self. What's humility? Often humility is reduced to, I should just describe how terrible I am and what a a horrible person, that that's what humility is. But we all know that actually that isn't true humility, right? That self-abasement, it may be um, appropriate to do when you're confronting a very insecure, powerful person, but isn't actually how community is built, right? If you're, if you're confronting a really insecure um, king, fine, self-abase yourself. I'm worthless, I'm terrible. But in fact, true humility means I know who I am. I know my skills and my weaknesses, and I 
engage appropriately knowing who I am in this context. I am neither raising myself too high, um, nor am I basing myself too low. Part of what humility, I think, does for us in this kind of a context as we think about how to build life together is, um, in part, what it requires is an acknowledgement. I am chosen, beloved, and holy in the eyes of God, and yet, simultaneously, I'm fallible. I can be wrong, and often am, and I have more to learn, right? Jesus goes, you're perfect in my eyes, but keep growing, right? You have everything, you know everything that you need to, to be in my presence, but there is still so much more to learn. When we approach people with compassion and kindness, with a posture of humility, we come at it not from, I already know everything you are going to tell me, and I'm just waiting for you to get it out so that I can disagree with you, right? We've all been in conversations like that or have all led conversations like that. Um, because, and right, nothing is more terrible than a conversation, right, than the, do you know why I am so mad with you? <laughs> You're like, oh, we're gonna, this is a doom guessing game, right? Because if I don't get an app, and we've had that conversation early in our marriage with my wife. One time she said, do you know why I'm so angry at you? And I said, I'm not playing that game. Because there's no way to win, right? Because if I don't get everything right in the order that you want and in the intensity you want, I'm wrong. Why don't you just tell me why you're angry with me? Because it's clear that you are, and I would rather learn than have to guess. But right, there's a humility like, I don't know. I'm sure I could be wrong. In fact, I'm frequently wrong. Help me to learn. It's not that I don't have truth that I embrace. It's not that I don't know some things. It's not that I don't have actual legitimate experiences. But I could be wrong. And do you see how all of a sudden if you have compassion and kindness in your posture for the other person and some humility about who you are, it opens up new avenues for what it means to bind ourselves together. Because honestly, there is nothing more delightful, life-giving or hopeful, than talking to somebody who has some humility. Right? Don't you love walking into a conversation and somebody goes, tell me more. I would love to learn from you. I have some things to offer this conversation, but I know you do too. Let's have a great conversation together, right? Don't, all of a sudden, the doors open up. Um, that's the only plausible thing that makes um, a cocktail party conversation even vi like mildly survivable for somebody like me is like the hope that I'll find somebody who I can go, tell me more, and that they're going to go, um, well, here, let me tell you all these things, and I'll just learn, and it's going to be a fun conversation. Um, Paul then says, look, if you can have kindness and compassion toward them and some humility toward yourself, then you'll have gentleness and patience as you engage the other person. Right? It seems pretty obvious at that point. Um, if you want to understand them and you're kind in your interpretation of what they say, and you bring some humility, it then becomes plausible to say, um, be gentle with one another. Don't use all your strength. Treat them with gentleness. And then be patient. Right? I mean, we all know why patience is really required at that moment, because even though I may be listening and trying to understand and having some humility, they still may be irritating. So Paul says, just look, just be patient, okay? Just take a deep breath. 
But some of what happens when you look at people with new eyes and you understand where your own heart is, that it gives you a new way to see the world. I often think of um, what C.S. Lewis wrote in his books, The Screwtape Letters. Are you familiar with that book? It's um, a senior devil encouraging a younger devil on how best to tempt this non-then-new Christian. And it's remarkably insightful, uh, horrifyingly insightful often when you read it and think, oh, I just fell for that. But when Screwtape is... Um, instructing his nephew Wormwood on how to tempt this very new Christian. Um, he says this, one of our greatest allies at present is the church itself. Don't misunderstand me. I don't, do not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is a local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face bustling up to offer him one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors that he has hitherto avoided. You may want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Part of what Screwtape gets at, right, is when you don't have compassion for the next person in the pew next to you, when you don't have humility to recognize who you are and who they may be, it's very hard to put on the virtues of gentleness and patience. And I think because of that, that's why Paul goes on, okay, I've, I've set up like this is how you should act together. It's striking to me that immediately after that, in verse 13, he says this, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Why does he go there? Because I think he goes, look, there are limits to how far compassion, kindness, and humility will take us, and there are going to be people next to us who are still somewhat irritating to us. And because we're a church, they're going to be irritating not just for a day or for an occasional holiday, but week after week, month after month, year after year. They're just going to get on your nerves. It's not easy to love people. So he goes, okay, even after you've been kind and patient, just bear with one another and forgive, okay? Right? But ultimately, it's, it's harder than we think. Um, that there are actually going to be real wounds that we inflict on one another. There will be causes to say, I don't need you just to excuse me. I need you to forgive me. I did something wrong. And it was intentional. And so I, I wasn't out of my mind. I wasn't extremely tired. I was just mean. Will you forgive me? Right? It's, we're we're going to be in a situation if we actually become a church together that we will need to ask those words, will you forgive me? Not just, I'd like to explain why I did what I did. And we will need to say those words in return as a person who has been forgiven frequently by Jesus. I intend to forgive you at least as frequently as that. The other person may not be lovable, they may not be enjoyable, but Paul 
argues and Jesus asserts they are forgivable because we have been forgiven, right? Forgive them as Christ has forgiven you, Paul says. Essentially, be like Jesus. Because again, just as Jesus was chosen deeply beloved and holy, and you are like Jesus, deeply beloved, chosen, and holy, be like Jesus in the abundance and frequency of your forgiveness. And that's why I think um, the apostles wrestle so hard with, how often do we need to forgive? Seven times? And Jesus goes, oh, no, 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 no. A multiple of that. And they think this is nearly impossible. And he says, that's precisely the point. But I am here. And then he says this last line when you just think, I, how? How can I do that? Not just once, right? Not just an occasional, like I see you every couple months uh, on the street or at a family gathering, but week after week, month after month, year after year. And Paul says this in verse 14, and over all these virtues, put on love which binds them, either these virtues or these people, all together in perfect unity, right? Because ultimately, we will not be able to do it by sheer force of will. Ultimately, it will not just be, I'm going to be disciplined and force myself to forgive, though that's often the beginning point. What Paul says is ultimately what you need to have is love for one another. Love which ultimately, of course, for us, if you are to be like Jesus, as Paul suggests, um, is demonstrated not just in warm affection for one another, not just in general approval of one another, but an actual choice to lay down your lives for one another, right? To sacrifice everything for the sake of the other person. And I think as you think about Paul saying, look, um, you must love one another. It makes me think frequently of 1 Corinthians 13, which um, has almost nothing to do with wedding ceremonies and has everything to do with how a church should live together in unity. Right? Because Paul's dealing with a church that's broken in 1 Corinthians, and he goes, let me explain what love looks like to you. And it's, it's such a critical thing. I actually know several pastors who will not allow 1 Corinthians 13 to be, to be read at weddings. Because he says that's not what it's about. I mean, that's a nice offshoot, but it really applies to the church. And look at how Paul describes some of the tensions that churches experience and how he still says love is actually the preeminent virtue which orders all of these other things. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Right? If I have the deepest spiritual experiences, right? if I am worshiping in the most exalted way and I don't have love for the people next to me, it's worthless. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. You can be the most theologically accurate person in the world. Have faith that literally begins to change the course of events in the world. If you cannot love the person next to you in the pew, God says, hmm, does not accomplish what I hope it will do. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. I may be the most servant-hearted, sacrificial, justice-oriented, change-the-world kind of person if I cannot do it with love for the person in the pew next to me. God goes, what a waste of effort, right? And then 
Paul picks up that same sets of virtues, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. We've heard these before. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where all these other spiritual things may see, right? If everything else ends, ultimately because Jesus demonstrates what love looks like on the cross and calls us to the love of God himself, that's what will remain, Paul says. And he... So he literally takes in 1 Corinthians 13, right, all of the challenges and all of the tensions that every church throughout history has always faced. Why aren't we doing more with the poor? Why aren't we being more theologically less? Why aren't we having these kind of spiritual experiences? And he goes, look, those, um, if they become a point of division among you, you're headed off in the direction, at least you must start with, how will I love the person next to me? And once you do that, all of those conversations, which are critical and all otherwise good things, because Paul boasts about his spiritual experiences. He's clearly concerned about orthodoxy. He clearly is engaged with service. He goes, then all those things fit into the right place. They're all important, but have to be done with a posture of love. And that's why I think in Colossians 3, 14, he goes, look, over all those other virtues put on love, which binds them together and orders them properly, and then we'll bring you into perfect unity. And then he ends this way. Unity in the church, I think, continues when we nurture each other in Christ. I'm going to do this pretty quickly, but it, it's rich. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Did you notice how he really describes all of our functions? Um, that we are to be nurtured in Christ um, and to reflect him. So that as members of one body, you have peace through Christ, right? We know that to be true. As fellow disciples, he said, we have one message from Christ, about Christ, um, so therefore, nurture and care for one another in these ways. As fellow servants, we have met one master, um, and therefore do everything for Christ. Um, do all things for him. And it's this very complete set of prepositions that are implied in this text. Um, we have peace through Christ. We have a message about and from Christ. And we have one master, so therefore we will do all things for Christ. It begins to echo what he says about who Jesus is at the beginning of Colossians 1, because he made all things in him, through him, for him. And Paul goes, look, that same reality applies to you. You have peace in Christ together. Live into it. You have a message from Christ about Christ. Nurture one another in it and pursue it. You have one way to do things, which is for Christ, because we share a common master. Right? Everything begins to revolve around who we are in Christ and what he's accomplishing in us. And then what I think is so subtle but so interesting is in every one of these three verses, he talks about thankfulness. Right? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts collectively, because we're one in Christ. Therefore, be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, so that we sing to God with gratitude, thankfulness in our hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why this constant refrain of thankfulness? Right? It seems odd that you'd insert it three times in these verses. Once would have been enough. Um, 
<clears throat> I don't think it's just because Paul's an extrovert. I think what Paul is saying is, look, a posture of thanksgiving, of deep thanksgiving, changes something from what must be endured to an opportunity to see God and to experience his sanctification, right? If I can approach the person with whom I struggle with deep thankfulness because they're somebody chosen, deeply beloved by God who's growing in holiness, then it postures me from a position of, ugh, I must just endure, to I am thankful for this person that you've brought into my life. Lord, you must have a reason. It opens a window for me to approach them in love. Right? If I approach a situation which may be difficult with thankfulness, Lord, in mo so I often talk to college students who are agonizing about their major and they don't know what to do, and I say to them, you know, right, that most people in the world never will choose a major. They, in fact, will never choose a job. They will take whatever they could possibly do. And then they sit back and go, I'm deeply blessed. And I say, that's right. You're about to turn God's burden, blessing to you into a burden. If you can approach this with deep thankfulness, suddenly it's not, what am I going to do? And why will you not speak, God? But Lord, the problem for me is I have such an abundance of choices before. Help me to choose wisely and joy. All of a sudden, the clenched fist that you have of fear begins to open up, and you go, I have so many choices in front of me. What a blessing. And then you're free to engage, right? When I approach a person with whom I may disagree or with whom I struggle as this is a gift of God in my life and to the world, then I am predisposed to discover with them what is God doing in your life? How are you bringing a word that I need to hear from the Lord? How are you, if even in an awkward way, moving me toward greater sanctification because I'm growing in love and patience, forbearance, and forgiveness? Um, then I actually receive them, right? I'm not holding them off. I'm not doing this. But I'm actually saying, welcome. And when we have a position of welcome, then all of a sudden, right, the conversation begins to change. The relationships begin to change. I, if I welcome you, then I have compassion. I want to demonstrate kindness for you, right? I'm going to be humble about who I am because you are a gift. Um, I'm going to demonstrate gentleness and patience because you are God's gift, and therefore I will treat you with the kind of respect that God's gift deserves. And then, I think Paul says, you'll have the kind of community that spares you from just being crowded together in a subway car, seemingly very close but non-interactive. Um, we won't be just a theater where we're hoping some people will uh, move us or entertain us, but actually we will be a congregation focused on God himself, hoping to delight him when we gather. Um, we won't be at a shopping center where we reduce people to just come, um, um, where we reduce other people to the question, will you meet my needs or not, Right? But we'll be a family, we'll be a fellowship together, we'll be a hospital where we actually serve and bring each other to health. We'll be the kind of community I think that all of us long for and the world so desperately needs to see because they can find stores and subway cars and theaters all around them. What they cannot find is the community of the church. 
which takes otherwise reasonably nice but somewhat unlovable, awkward people and turns them into the family that we're going to spend eternity with, with great thankfulness, joy. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, I um, think so frequently of how in our culture it's easy to reduce people either into obstacles we must overcome, um, units that we must count, um, or people who deliver a service to us. And I pray, um, give us eyes at least to see one another here with your eyes, uh, that we'd understand your delight in them, your hope for them, um, and your work around and through them so that um, we'd receive each other as good gifts from you. To you be the honor and glory forever. Amen.